Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25, and we'll start reading with verse 14. It's interesting, our uh, Scripture readings today talked about King David, who is the exemplar king of the Old Testament. So in other words, of all the kings that were in Judah and in Israel, uh, David is the ideal king. Hence the reason when Jesus comes, he's called what? The son of who? David. Not only the son of God, but the son of David. Fascinating enough. So that was the first reading we had this morning. The second, which Christopher read, the psalm reading, was about the city of God, who was built originally by David in Jerusalem, uh, which Jerusalem was, of course, their capital. And it was where the temple was, and it was where God met them, and they did sacrifices. But it was also called Zion, which, as we know, also is a symbol for heaven. So you get that in the second, or, you know, the second reading. And then Paul, talking about in our third reading today, um, weakness. So he goes to heaven. <laughs> he actually takes a trip to heaven, which is fascinating in itself. And he basically says, look, uh, I've seen some things that no one else has seen. I've been up all the way to heaven, had revelations, and yet I'm not to speak of them. It's almost like in the book of Revelation when he says, seal up the book, no more is to be said. That's exactly what happens here. We're not to know what's on the other side exactly. Uh, For whatever reason, uh, we're told a little bit about heaven, but not everything. And Paul basically says, look, the only thing I'm going to boast in is not having these revelations or visions, not going up there and seeing those things, but instead in my weakness. Why? Because Paul knows a little something about the nature of reality that Jesus reveals to us, and that is the way of the cross is the way of life. Not the way of pridefulness or self-centeredness or boasting, but instead the way of the cross. And we know where that led Jesus. And then the last reading dealt with the king himself, Jesus, from Mark, who is the ultimate authority, who is the real true king of Israel. Uh, so I just found it fascinating that the, the, the scriptures this morning, uh, which I had not previously read, interestingly enough, um, actually lined up with what we're going to do this morning. So look here in Matthew chapter 25, and we're going to start reading here with verse 14. Jesus says this in the way of a parable. For it will be like a man, talking about the kingdom of heaven, going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, 
Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, and he also who had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him saying, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sowed and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will, be, will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness, in that place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let us pray. Lord, we need Your help in understanding Your Word, in applying Your Word to our hearts this morning. May Your Holy Spirit help us do just that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Pretty strong words, especially at the ending of the parable. Which is fascinating. Most, most people like parables and think, yeah, we're kind of in cool territory here when we get into the parables because uh, they're stories. And yet, at the end of this story is a very sobering reality. He's sent away into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, there's no way around uh, misinterpreting what that has to say about the end of life and judgment. That's what we call hell. And yet, this is good news. <laughs> it is. Let's look here this morning and, and ask ourselves a couple questions. First thing that we need to deal with is this. The kingdom of heaven, which is mentioned here in 25.1, which is kind of the start of this whole thing, as always, it's tough just to kind of jump in. It's kind of like jumping into a, the middle of a movie, or actually the near, near the end of uh, Matthew's movie here in the Gospel of Matthew. We're already in chapter 25, and yet we're jumping right in. So just contextually, he's speaking here of the kingdom of heaven. And if you'll just kind of browse around a little bit, you can see that he's, he's, uh, he's speaking of the kingdom of heaven in parables to them. Uh, and also dealing with different things that come along with questions that, that are asked of Him. So what is the kingdom of heaven? You've probably heard of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, and maybe it's unsure in your mind what that exactly is. And it is a good question. It's a good uh, biblical question to try to dig up and look at. Some people have seen it as a structure 
like an exterior structure, really. Almost like what you get when you read the psalm that we read this morning, 48, which says that Zion is here. This is where God uh, dwells. This is His temple. This is the place where we meet Him. And so therefore, the kingdom of God coming, which is the way the Scripture talks about it, the kingdom of God is coming, but also Jesus says the kingdom of God is here, now. But He also says it's in you. So you have all these different prepositions that are making the kingdom go different places. And I'm not good with grammar, so you know I just learned a few years back what a preposition was. So uh, don't think that I'm smart because I can say that. But nonetheless, you have these different ways in which the kingdom is going. It's in us. It's coming about. It's here now. Uh, it's before you. And yet, there is still an expectant part of it. So... Is it some type of superstructure that God is building here on earth? I mean, is it going to happen through political means? Uh, by no means. I think we can all agree on that. That's a, that's a different subject. We know that the kingdom of men always falls. There's no kingdom, even the greatest of kingdoms, Rome. You think of Rome, you think of Sumer. Uh, the Sumerians who gave us writing and who gave us math and who gave us... Uh, all sorts of things, the will, and yet they fell. No kingdom of man has ever lasted. But we're told the kingdom of God will last forever. This is the promise that was actually made back to David in the Old Testament. He was told that his kingdom would last forever. Now, of course, (laughs) you remember the story, what happened. David dies and Solomon takes over. And they're thinking, all right, we're going to have a kingdom that lasts forever. He takes Israel to its zenith as far as power, money, influence, so on and so forth. And then, of course, his two sons, Jeroboam and Rehoboam, split the kingdom. They divide it. And his family basically falls apart. And so they're saying, did God keep His promise? This is the question they're asking later on with the minor prophets. Prophets such as Malachi. Is, is it worth serving God? I mean, do we even have a king? Who is the king? <laughs> the secret is in the Old Testament, the king was always God. The king that was on the throne at the time, the human king, was simply the servant of the true king. Just like pastors and priests are shepherds under the good shepherd. We don't have a monopoly by any means, and neither did the earthly king. They were just there to shepherd people. God was their true king. So some have have said, okay, well, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, which, by the way, those two are synonymous. Matthew uses kingdom of heaven, interestingly enough, which, remember, he was talking to Jews mainly, which that would have meant the same thing as God would be heaven for them. Whereas Mark, John, and Luke all say the kingdom of God. So those are synonymous. But it's not just a superstructure, is it? It's not just something that we're going to begin to build here. It is that. We are building that. This is what our church does, is build the kingdom of God. And yet it's not just that. Some have said, well, it's also got to be in us. It's the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God must come in us. And this is true as well. Uh, we know that because Jesus says it. It's in you. Um, and so what does that mean? It means that Jesus' reign, if He's the true King, which He 
the Scripture says is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. I know you probably watched the movie 300, and you remember Xerxes says that he's the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He's gracious and kind and so on and so forth. Remember he puts his hand on uh, Leonidas and says that. Maybe you've never seen the movie. I'm sorry if you haven't. But you ought to know history and you ought to know that he also, Xerxes, thought he was God. He thought he was the king of kings because he ate all the other gods, literally. He destroyed them. But he's not the true king. He fell just like any man. Just like any dog dies and is buried, he too was dead and buried. And he did not rise again. He's not the true king. Jesus is the true king. And if he is, then that means that he can reign in our hearts. Not just in culture, structurally. But instead also in our own hearts he can reign. He ought to reign. Uh, for He is the true King. But also, the kingdom of God is a third thing. It's Jesus Himself. That's the secret. If you go through and read the parables, He talks about the kingdom of heaven being like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds for their time. And yet it grows into a great tree. And wasn't Jesus just considered by the empire of Rome, a little twip, just a little blip on their radar? Wasn't he considered by the religious rulers a nuisance to be dealt with and done with and washed their hands of? He was nothing to them. Just a little seed. And yet, when they buried that seed, when that seed fell into the ground and germinated and died and resurrected into a plant into a tree that bears much fruit. And look at Christianity today. It has borne much fruit. Christianity is the largest religion in the world, by the way, if you didn't know. Now, Islam's gaining. But as of now, Christianity by far is the, uh, the largest. So the kingdom of God is both structurally in our culture, in our world, but it's also in here Ultimately, it's Jesus Himself. That's who He's talking about. The kingdom of God is His kingship. He is the true king. And if He is, then that means this is His world. This is His kingdom. It's His reign. And He's only gracious enough to veil Himself for a time, just as He is in heaven right now, seated at the Father's right hand, veiled, not seen, in other words, so that we might respond to His kingship. It's only by His grace that He doesn't reveal Himself. Because as soon as He steps out, the party's over, the show's over. If He's the director of this story, then when the director comes out, the play's over. And when He steps out one day, which He will, the show's over. You've already chosen sides. Now, to get back to our story here, It's interesting, the parable that Jesus tells, again concerning the kingdom. Notice this, He says when... He says it's like... Basically, the kingdom is like a man taking a long journey who basically calls his servants and entrusts them uh, with property, with, with a gift, with a talent. Here, talent really means a bag of silver, about 75 pounds of silver. So one talent is 75 pounds of silver uh, for them. It's not just talents, like uh, being able to play a musical instrument. Uh, it's actually a, a bag of money here <clears throat> that's spoken of. He entrusts them. And the first thing that I think we have to see in this parable is 
obviously God is the one who takes the journey. When Jesus comes, He becomes one of us. He doesn't stay here. He leaves. And we don't know when He's coming back. No one knows the day or the hour when He comes back. No one. And so we work until He comes back. He takes this long journey, but He entrusts us with certain things. I mean, the fact that you're sitting there in a body, that body was not created by you. Uh, the material for your body, even though you were conceived and generated uh, in, your, in your mother's womb and grown there through the gestational process, uh, she neither created you, she co-created you. Your father and mother co-created you. Uh, they didn't totally create you. The, the raw material was already there. Uh, it's like what I said uh, the other week about the surgeon who said, well, I did the surgery. Well, who gave him the hands? Not himself. We don't give ourselves our own gifts, our own life, our own breath. Instead, everything in life is a gift. And ultimately, God Himself is pure gift. He is only giving. It's what He does in His own very nature. I mean, Christians believe that God is one, but also three persons, one God. Not just a one man in heaven, but instead three per- Father, Son, and Holy Spirit giving to one another, sharing life, loving one another. It's, what, it's why God is love. It's not just something God does, but instead God actually is love. He's what love is. So He entrusts them with different gifts, so to speak, according to their abilities, He says. One, five, one, two, and then another one. And I think the point of that is, you know, we don't, I'm not supposed to look around and say, okay, well, I don't have as many gifts as so and so, therefore I'm going to make these as it. But instead, whatever we have, we give to God. It's not our place to make decisions or to lust after uh, people, things, possessions, covet other things. Obviously, that's uh, breaking the Ten Commandments way back in the Old Testament. We're not, to, we're not to want what other people have. Instead, look at what we do have already. And of course, the, the secret, one of the secrets in life of being happy is, is actually knowing that you don't have to look around and see what other people have. When you start looking really at your life and seeing what you already have, then you become much more satisfied than always seeking, always searching. And that's the problem with lusting and coveting is it's never enough. I mean, when you get your own island, well, somebody else has two. So now you've got to go three. It's never enough. And even when you do get to the top, we see people who kill themselves. Why? They don't have any needs. They wish they could go back to being like us, like me. Middle class, not known, not famous. But they can't. He gives them these talents and... uh, just as God gives us talents, real talents. I mean, just like we saw here today uh, with music. God has given you a life. He's given you certain abilities that He hasn't given anybody else. There is no other you in the world. You're it. There's no carbon copy of you, even though we have twins here. They're not alike. If you know them both, they're not. They're distinct differences. And there's distinct differences in all of it. It's fascinating that our world wants to say that everybody is equal in some type of 
unified way in the sense that there is no distinction between male and female. There's no distinction between this or that. And yet God, in His original plan, had distinctions between us. He made them male and female. Distinctions are not bad. Distinctions make us unique, unrepeatable. There's not going to be another you. God has given you certain things that no one else has, and He has entrusted those things to you. He also calls us servants. Now, we don't really like that. At least I don't like that term, servant. It sounds slave-like, which is very negative, especially here in America. Um, Even though slavery, in some sense, is still going on in the world in places. Um, And in the ancient world, of course, it it was very prevalent. But He calls us servants. And He is our Master. Uh, And it goes back again to the fact that if He's our Master, then that means that He owns us. (laughs) And isn't that the case? Now, we don't like that. Nobody does. Nobody doesn't like to think that someone owns... You don't own me. That's what I hear. You don't own me. Who do you think you are? And yet, God does own us. He owns everything about us. We're His property. He's the one who make we don't make ourselves. He is our master. The good news is he's a good master. In Romans chapter 6 it tells us that you will serve one of two masters. In other words, in this life you're not going to be the master of the universe. Little he-man plug. Masters of the Um, You're not going to be that uh, in this life. You can think you are, but really your master is Satan. Because that's exactly what he tries to do, is rise up against God and do his own thing. Isn't that what our first parents did? I mean, the simple sin of taking fruit off a tree was basically saying to God, I know you told me not to do this, but I'm going to be my own master of my own destiny. And yet it's the sin that we all repeat after them is we want to be in control. We think this is our property. The new, the new you know, jargon in our culture is, that's my right. <laughs> I'm in Mississippi at Preaching Revival and on the television, this is no joke. Now, the state, the government, says that you have a right to a cell phone. And there's a company that actually will give you a cell phone in Mississippi uh, if you don't have enough money to buy one so that you can get a job on a cell phone. A cell phone's a right. Healthcare's a right. This is a right. That's a right. I have a right to live in a house. I have a right to live in a house that has air conditioning. I have a right to drive a, a car that's not going to break down on the road. We have all these rights. And the Scripture teaches none of them. The only right we have is to fall down on our knees and throw our hands in the air and worship. Because what has been given to us is a gift. That's why we call it the present. Past, present, and future. It's present. This is the only gift I have is this minute right here that this watch of mine is telling me as the seconds go by. Every second is a gift. I'm not promised 30 seconds from now. I'd hate to see you you all see me die. That would not be good. It would be traumatic for you and we wouldn't want that. But I'm not promised 30 seconds from now. It's all a gift. 
But that's not the way I live my life normally. Normally I live my life as if I'm the one who fed this body. I'm the one who has nurtured this body. I'm the one who drove myself here and did this and that without ever connecting it to our Maker. Remember what we recited in the Creed? He's the Maker of us, not us. (laughs) Now, so they receive these abilities... Um, and these two up front, the one who got five, the one who got two, they both invested uh, the monies. And you think, you know, you, you kind of think when you read this, well, the guy at the end, I mean, that's what we tend toward, you know? I've got some money here. I've got this life. I want to protect this life, which is exactly what he does. These, these two other guys, they invested, end up making uh, five more, two more. Off, off of what had been given to them. Notice the language here in 16. He who had received. And of course it's said of the same of all three of them. Every one of them had received the same uh, gift. Different levels, different distinctions of gifts, amount, so to speak, but, not, but they all received a gift. They all received something. But notice when they're called to account here. It says, and he also who had the five talents, he says, uh, verse 20 here, and he received, he would receive the five talents, came forward bringing five times more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents. And the same thing is said of the person who has two. So basically, they say, to, they say to the Master, you've given me, you've delivered to me these five talents, and I made for you five more. So this tells me that in our life, there is a work of God in our life, but also our own working. It's not, Christianity is not a matter of just sitting back and letting God do everything. That's not what we mean by believing in Jesus or believing on Jesus. That's, that's not what's meant by justification by faith alone. Because faith, defined properly in the New Testament, is always connected to works. We work. Remember the, uh, the Scripture, it is God who works in us, both to will and to do, for, our, for His good pleasure. Uh, but we work too. That's the point. He does things and we do things. It's a relationship. That's what we always talk about. People always say, you know, Christianity is about a relationship, not about religion. Well, let's make it a relationship then. Do something religious. <laughs> Which people always, they always uh, want to denigrate religious acts, but praying is religious. Singing is religious. Coming to church is religious. Jesus was the most religious person to ever walked the face of the earth. And yet He had a relationship. You do things religiously every single day. Every single morning I get up and open the blinds. It's what I do every single morning. As soon as I get up, I open the blinds. I can't stand to be closed in the house like that. I like to see the sun. You do certain things every morning when you get up, whether it's eat breakfast right away or read the newspaper or drink coffee. You do things religiously. Let's do good relational things religiously. That's all I'm saying. We don't have to denigrate religion by any means. These guys took a risk. That's what's interesting here. They took a risk. The two before this third one who goes and hides it. 
Obviously, they could have lost his money. They could have not gotten investment back. But they chose to risk it. And in this life, Jesus says this, Do not protect your life, but instead give it. And haven't you found that to be true in your life? When you actually go and do something for someone else, you feel better about life. You feel like you're doing something good. So we call doing something good. (laughs) We don't call hoarding money good. We look at people who give it away and we say, wow, that's, that's respectable. These guys took a risk. But this other fellow here, this last dude who, he goes, it says, and he hides it. He digs in the ground and he hides it because he's afraid. Now, does that not carry you back to Genesis chapter 3? Our first parents, Adam and Eve, who had been given the gift of life. They had been giving every. They didn't even have to work real hard for their food, remember? Childbearing apparently was nice and pleasant. And all that goes down the drain because they were afraid. Now, the Scripture says to fear God, but it doesn't mean to be afraid. That's not the kind of fear He's talking about. It's respect. Remember what we talked about this. It's about honoring. As a father, you respect a father figure. Here, He's afraid of His Master, so He goes and protects this investment. Protects this life. Which is, I mean, here's He's closed. He shuts it up. Doesn't do anything with it. So he can then present it and say, hey, look, you, you, here's what you gave me. And that's not what he wants at all. Unless a grain of wheat, Jesus says, falls into the ground and dies, it never becomes anything other than a grain of wheat. And this is exactly what this guy does, is remain a grain of wheat. He doesn't fall into the ground, allow the soil to germinate him, his own death, to become something more than a seed. And therefore he bears no fruit. There's no fruit that comes from this third uh, fellas protection God doesn't call us to protect our life but instead to give our life remember Jesus what we said at the beginning of this is that Jesus shows us that the way of life is actually the way of the cross he goes and lays down his life for others so that others might benefit and we think to ourselves well that's great And that's really good, and that's the exception. You know, most people aren't going to do that. That's the exception. But but here's the reality. Here's the Christian reality that we have to turn our world upside down on is this. That's not the exception. That's the rule. The way of the cross is actually the rule of life. Not some exception. It's not only the saints or only preachers or only missionaries get to that point. No, it's everyone must get to that place where they die to their self. Jesus says in Mark 8, if you want to be my disciple, deny yourself, which is tough, take up your cross and follow me. The only way to follow Jesus is to take up a cross. When He comes back, After this long time, uh, it says that he wants to settle the accounts. And of course, he tells them, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done, good and faithful servant to the first two guys. But it's not what he says to the last one. He sends him into outer darkness. Well done, 
good, faithful servant. He says, faithful you were with little, therefore I will give you much. And then he says, enter into the joy of your master. You know, we don't say this enough in Christianity, but serving God, Him being our master, is a joyous thing. It's not something we have to put on. In the Old Testament, they partied all the time. They did. It's what all the festivals were all about. They had different days that were set aside. Which is why I think it's great that we, at, at Harvest Point here, we follow the church's calendar. We, we uh, celebrate Advent. We celebrate Epiphany. Uh, we celebrate Lent. We celebrate Easter, Pentecost. All these holy days that have been set aside so that we can look to heaven and say to ourselves, you know what? One day, uh, we're really going to be able to celebrate. Because just as the song we just sang uh, said to us, it's going to be worth it. I know in this life, uh, things get complicated. Things get tough. Life is difficult. And sometimes it gets very dark. But it's going to be worth it if you are faithful. Be good. Be faithful. Be a servant of the Master. That is what the kingdom of God looks like in you. This guy says, Look, I was afraid. I knew that you benefited from things you didn't plant. That you received investments that you didn't actually uh, borrow into. And so I was afraid. So I wanted to give you back what you had did so. Instead, I, I was afraid and I hid. So go back to Adam and Eve. What did they do? They were afraid that what the, what the serpent had told them, uh, God was hiding something from them, remember? He says to them, surely you won't die. God just won't, doesn't want you to be as smart as He is. Like Him, knowing good and evil. And they say to themselves, well, maybe He is hiding something from us. And they were afraid, and they sinned, and then they hid. In our life today, the gift that God has given you, the gift of your life, the gift of your family, your situation, everything that He's given you, have you given that back to God? In baptism, we die with Christ and are raised in new life. Has that happened for you? Have you known Jesus Christ to be your Master? Now, I see shirts and stuff that say, Jesus is my homeboy. But that's not the same thing as Master. We say Jesus is our friend and our buddy. But what about Master? Because He has to first be Master before He can be anything else. And really, we must get to that very dark place where the only name we can call out is Jesus. Normally, we can't bring ourselves there. Situations bring us there. People bring us there. Confrontations bring us there. It's interesting in, uh, in Lord of the Rings, which I'm reading because uh, I'm trying to prep myself for The Hobbit coming out. Frodo 
when he is attacked by the ring wraiths for the first time, he stabs him in the arm. But before he does, you know, they had a little little battle, and he had his little sword out and was trying to. But he got stabbed in the shoulder. And Aragorn, talking to him later, uh, he said, "Well, did I did I actually stab the ring wraith?" And he said, "Yeah, you got him a little bit, but he said that didn't hurt him as much as you calling out the name of Elbereth." He said, "When you called that name, that hurt him way more." than any sword could ever do. And of course, later on, the name of Elbereth is also used uh, by Frodo again in a very dark situation in his life later on in a battle. Because the name of Elbereth is powerful in Lord of the Rings in that world. Also, the name of Tom Bombadil. Tom, Tom Bombadil, who is not shown in the movies, by the way, if you haven't seen him, or if you have seen him, he says, anytime you need me, just call me and I'll come running. And that's exactly what happens. They get into a situation and they call on him and he comes running. And you know, I was thinking as I was reading that, words are really powerful. It's by the Word of God that the world was created. Jesus is actually called the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. And you know what Jesus says to us just like old Tom does in Lord of the Rings? He says... Anytime you need me, just call me and I'll come running. The problem is, we think this is our life. We think we can handle it. We don't want to cry out. You know, I have three boys. My boys don't mind crying out when they need help. When Bo gets his little finger stuck in something because he's sticking it somewhere he shouldn't, he cries out. He doesn't care who's sleeping or who's watching a movie or... You know, we're meeting with uh, the President of the United States. It doesn't matter to him. He's going to cry out and cry as long as he needs to until he gets satisfied uh, with what's going on. And you know, we adults, we try to be real proper. We try to look like we've got it under control. Because isn't that what an adult is supposed to have? It's supposed to have things under control, right? We're not supposed to go around whining and crying. And yet... We are if we're to become like little children in order to enter the kingdom of God. Because the only way to enter the kingdom of God is to become like a little child. Have you cried out to the Father? Because you can today. He'll come running. He'll come running because He knows that He's your only real hope in this life. Maybe you're in a situation... I don't, I don't know people's hearts, but... God does. Do you need Him today? Can you really say He's your master? That you are His servant? That you're working just like these guys were, the first two? To have Him a return investment? Are you working for the kingdom? Are you producing fruit of the kingdom? Because if you're not, the good news is today you can start. Now I want to do a little something different in our response time.